We praise you, our Lord, our Savior, our God and King, for the songs we've sung, for the words that we have spoken, for the scriptures that have been read and the prayers that have ascended to you. We praise you for the reminder, for the promise that Christ intercedes at your right hand for your people. We thank you for this confidence. We thank you for the spirits testifying to our spirit that we are the children of God as we've sung. And we pray now that you would teach us your word and that those who know not Christ would come to the light of that gospel. We long for them to do so. We pray that they would do so, that you would continue to open eyes to this truth. And Lord, teach us what you would have us to believe and to do who you would have us to be and to become. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. We are a gathering of bigots, an assembly of arrogant, intolerant know-it-alls. In the judgment of some of our critics, this charge is very fair because we claim to know absolute truth that is universally binding. The charge is fair, they say, because we deny to other religious people the certainty and the finality that we place exclusively in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such unyielding biblical convictions offend the world's pluralistic convictions. So they say, let's reason together. You believe Jesus fulfilled and superseded Israel's faith. But what right do you have to insist that God would never send another prophet to supersede Jesus? What right do you have to insist that Muslims are wrong to see Muhammad as the final and superior prophet? The Baha'i faith claims that Mirza Hussein Ali Nuri, born in the 19th century, is God's latest prophet, along with Jesus and Muhammad, but now this prophet, the one to whom Jesus pointed. What right do you have to deny two people of the Baha'i faith the very conclusions that you draw about Jesus? Well, Hebrews 7, verses 20 to 28 are not specifically composed to address this outcry against the Christian faith. But this passage does answer these objections in a powerful way. And closer to home, this passage serves as a sanctifying reminder of why we insist that Jesus is not only God's final prophet, but that He is also the only and eternal great high priest, King of kings and Lord of lords. And steering us to this conclusion, the author of Hebrews has repeatedly drawn our attention to that brilliant comet that lights up the revelatory sky in Psalm 110 and verse 4. We read it today in our scripture reading from Psalm 110. But remembering again the pieces that we have to bring to Hebrews 7 to understand by way of background, the first is Genesis chapter 14. Remember that event where Abraham is blessed by and pays tithes to the king-priest Melchizedek. What takes place there is very crucial 
to the writing of Psalm 110, verse 4 particularly. There's a second event, and that's Genesis 22, where God swears an oath to bless Abraham. And all that's involved with that blessing as it points to Messiah. And then there's Exodus chapters 19 to 31, where God establishes the Levitical, and including the Aaronic clan priesthood, as an aspect of the Mosaic Covenant. So there is a covenant established or cut with Israel at Mount Sinai that includes this priesthood. And then there is Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In some sense, though the law were uh, subtly in the background, this verse is drawing upon each of these three preceding points. We've established that. The author's been working with this in this as he puts together this mosaic of Christ here in this chapter. But as we move forward into uh, verse 20 and following, we're looking here at this background and seeing 2,000 years of revelatory progress that culminates in Jesus, the great high priest who fulfills and supersedes the Levitical priesthood. But going back to Genesis, there are hundreds of years that bring us then to Mount Sinai and hundreds of years, around 500, that bring us to David and this prophecy and then another thousand to Jesus. Pretty tough to coordinate that stretch of time amidst all of these writers of Scripture. But in any event, the superior priesthood of Jesus permits us, the author has insisted, to draw near to God in a new and fuller way. Continuing that thought now in verse 20, he reveals the superiority, the permanency, and the finality of Jesus' high priestly office on the throne of the universe. What confidence, then, may we have that Jesus is the last high priest, the only name by which we must be saved? Realizing that we're going to the Christian scriptures, we find here the firm and solid answer. First, we notice in the first three verses that Jesus' priestly ministry rests on God's eternal oath. His priestly ministry rests on God's eternal oath. So verse 20, it was not without an oath. It's a strange line to start a sermon on, isn't it? But as we get in back into the flow of chapter 7, uh, drawing near to God involves this oath from God for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. What's the idea here? It was not without an oath. That is, it was with an oath. Jesus' priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, was established by God who swore an oath to this end. This is very big. And any Jewish person reading the Hebrew Scriptures would know this is a really big deal, that God swore that oath to Abraham in Genesis 22. 1,200 years later, He swears an oath in the text of Scripture at Psalm 110 and verse 4. This is a big deal. But those who formerly became priests go in between that 
about 1000 AD of David in Psalm 110.4 and go back to the oath that God swore to Abraham, right in the middle of that is the giving of the law. And in the giving of the law and the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, God did not issue an oath. Now, he doesn't have to issue an oath, but he's getting our attention to understand the significance of these mountain peaks of revelatory progress. He did not issue an oath for the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. That's the point of verse 20. But this one... Verse 21, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So what's he talking about? It's clearly Psalm 110 and verse 4. God swears an oath to Abraham in Genesis 22. Now here, around 1000 AD, God swears an oath, swearing an oath to the one who is the priest forever. God's swearing an oath distinguishes these two exquisitely rare and uniquely pivotal moments in salvation history. So Abraham, and here, as it has been described, this comet through the night sky that flashes at Psalm 110 in verse 4. David's greater son, an oath is sworn by God that he will be a priest forever. So that oath and that priesthood are, in a sense then, woven into the fabric of the universe. That oath and that priesthood are part of God's saving plan, never to be changed, never to be superseded. One obvious implication is verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, the one stands, who stands to defend it, the one who assures that it will take place. The old covenant and its priesthood is replaced by the superior priesthood of Jesus. The old covenant was not evil, it was not useless in its unique place on the timeline of salvation history. It was light in a dark world. So God is not scrapping his salvation plan and starting over. However, the new covenant, the way God has provided now through Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners to come to God, that covenant swallows up the old system. It fulfills it. It completes it. And so he even says in verse 18 that it renders it useless. And I think that's a right way to understand the idea. It renders it useless. It wasn't useless at the time. Not that God said, wow, man, I really blew that one. I need to start over and we're just going to start from scratch and try a different way. Not at all. He's building on what he is carving out and showing us of his salvation plan. But it's useless now. That's the point of verse 18. Let me picture it this way. Imagine their three friends are out in a wilderness area and did not plan on this, but a blizzard strikes. And they cannot really see very far at all. And it's a blinding blizzard and the wind is howling and the temperatures are dropping and the snow is swirling and they're not sure if they're going to make it. But as they work their way, just walking blindly in the direction they think they're supposed to go, they stumble upon an old shack. 
It's just a wooden, rickety shack. There's knot holes in it and cracks in it and a two-inch crack under the door and some of the panes and the, of the glass have broken out. And It's not much of a shelter, but it's a shelter. And they get inside there and after a period of time, they regain their strength and they say, this thing has saved us. This thing is really, but we've got to move from here. We've got to go on. As they walk out further into that blizzard, now strengthened to some degree, also recognizing that they're still very much in trouble. But they realize that that building was just an outbuilding of a log home. A large log home that now appears before them because the light from inside the house shines out into the, into the blizzard and there's smoke coming from the chimney and they see people peering out through the glass and then opening the door and saying, come in, come in, welcoming them into the warm environment where there's warmth and food and people that are caring for them and working them back to health and life and they're so thankful they found this home. Well, think of the shack as the old covenant and this home as the new covenant. Now that they're in this house and warming up and being fed and brought back to health, that shed is useless. It had a purpose. It led to the house, but it's got no use anymore. Verse 22, Jesus is now the guarantor of a better covenant. He's the one, so to speak, at the door of the home who invites us in. He's the one who assures that we will be cared for in every way and in a superior way to anything that was known under the Old Covenant. He personally guarantees that the salvation provided by His death, His resurrection, ascension, and reign will never fail anyone who trusts Him for salvation. Jesus' priestly ministry rests on God's eternal oath. And in this we find confidence. Secondly, Jesus' priestly ministry continues forever. Verse 23, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The contrast is very obvious. The Levitical priests died one by one, their position passing from one generation to the next. They were just human beings after all. But the stark contrast here is that Jesus holds this priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Kings and prophets and priests die, but Jesus rose from the grave, conquered death, never to die again. His priesthood then is perpetual. He will never die. He'll never be replaced. And we find here a great distinction. Other world religions, in other world religions, people leave behind their teachings. They leave behind a legacy to emulate and to honor. And this Jesus certainly did. But Jesus' ministry is ongoing. After his death, rising from the dead, his ministry is ongoing. He continues to gather a people for his name from among the nations. And they're not gathered by the power of clan identity. They're not gathered by the force of philosophical intrigue and agreement. They are not gathered by motivating followers to improve their lives, to follow the rules, 
to become better people. Jesus continues to gather together a people for his name from among the nations that require nothing less than the new birth. He pours out and continues to pour out his spirit. He continues to transform people, to give them that new birth and to unite them with his church. The work of Jesus Christ is not memory of what he left behind. It is current transformation in the hearts of his people. What are the implications of this ongoing ministry as high priest? Verse 25, consequently, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Think of that, concentrate on it. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Connect that drawing near to God back to verse 19. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is much the point, that sinners are brought into the presence of God. So back to verse 25, he's able to save those who draw near to God through him. Christ's high priestly role is absolutely effective. Draw near to God by trusting in the work that Christ, our great high priest, has done, and he will save you to the uttermost. In other words, this priest can save you from all your sins, think of it, from all your evil, from all your weakness, from every way that you have failed through your entire life, and indeed from every way that you will fail in the days to come. He saves you utterly. It's interesting, this word is a rare word to save to the uttermost. Uh, the word uttermost is a rare word found in Luke 13 and verse 11. You remember the crooked lady? She was bent over. She couldn't stand up. And it said they, they tried to help her. They did everything they could to get her to stand up straight, but they couldn't do it utterly. They couldn't do it to the uttermost. They couldn't do it completely. The same word is used here, there. And what did Jesus do? He stood her up. He got her straight. He saved her to the uttermost in that physical narrative. Reminds me of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia describing entrance into heaven and the older people say they've been been unstiffened. Uh, Some of us understand how wonderful that would be (laughs) to be unstiffened. She was unstiffened totally. Absolutely. The woman in Luke 13 could not be unstiffened by the doctors, but when Christ healed her, he did so completely. Do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ can do that with your soul? He can unstiffen us. He can straighten us and save us absolutely, utterly, permanently. This is our Savior. In a far more glorious sense, to straighten us out. Not by self-reformation, but by divine transformation. And I would say to you, if, you've, if you're at the verge of say, I, I almost am hopeless toward the idea that I could be saved from my sin. Let me point you to this high priest. This one who has provided salvation and can save to the uttermost. Let me say this, no sin that you have ever committed 
No wrong that you have done to another, no sin that you have dreamed of committing is beyond the reach of Christ's power to save. You might object and say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've dreamed about doing. I really have lost any thought that Jesus could forgive me if he tried. But let me encourage you, it's not that I underestimate your sin. It's that you underestimate the power of Jesus to save. You underestimate what he has done as high priest to save people like us from our sin. And that is the good news of the gospel. Everything that must be done has been accomplished. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in Christ's provision of salvation. Do not let your failures keep you from seeing his power to save. We can, in fact, draw near to God through Jesus, not because of who we are, not because of what we do, but we can draw near to Jesus We can draw near to the Father through the Son. Verse 25 continues, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost and is always making intercession for His people. The priests know every sin and weakness, every shortcoming and spiritual need as far as they can see in their humanity. But Jesus saves to the uttermost. He knows every sin and weakness, every shortcoming and spiritual need, even the ones that no one else sees. And He intercedes at the Father's right hand. Is this a comfort or what? There are trials in my life, and I'm I'm banging up against them right now, that I I don't know what to pray. I go down one line of prayer, and I'm like, Well, that may not work. God may think something else. That may not even end well. And he may know that won't end well. I don't know what to ask. What assurance to know Jesus does. He is never stymied. There are prayers we desperately need to pray as well, and we don't even know that we need to. I'd like us just to focus here for a moment and think. The risen, reigning Christ intercedes at the Father's right hand for you, believer. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows where your life needs to go and you don't even know which direction is best. And He intercedes at the Father's right hand for you. This isn't Jesus pleading desperately with the Father to be nice to you. This is the triune being communicating with one another and knowing you infinitely well and with absolute love and praying and interceding for what is best and what is right for you. Don't doubt it. Trust it. And this is no reason to abandon prayer. We abandon prayer and the intercessory prayers of Jesus may be for our discipline. It's ridiculous to say, I'll just let Jesus do it then. I'll let him pray. He knows what he's asking. I don't. Of course not. 
The fact that Jesus is interceding for me should encourage me to pray all the more diligently, to enter into fellowship with the triune being and to seek his face. It should also put our trials in perspective, should it not? Every trial and heartache that we are dealing with, that we're handling right now in our lives or will handle in the days to come, I have absolute confidence that Jesus has me covered. He is interceding for me. He knows all. And he's there. Thirdly, Jesus' priestly ministry flows from his moral perfections. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. That translation is probably not helping us a whole lot. I think it would be better, such a high priest is perfectly fitted to us. He's perfectly fitted to our need and to our situation. But we have such a high priest fitted to our need. Who is he? He is holy. He is innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He is holy. That is, he is distinct from us as a sinless man. As a sinless God, utterly devoted to the will of what is right and the path of righteousness. He is innocent, that is without sin or guile, without false motive and free from evil. Who is this attorney at God's right hand? Who is this one that stands for you and speaks your case? He is unstained. In terms of the old covenant sacrifices, he they point, it points to Jesus as the sinless substitute who dies for sinners and whose blood pleads for us at heaven's throne. He is separate from sinners. I think in the context of the book, think 4, 14 to 16, for instance, this priest who knows our temptations, who can sympathize with him. I think in the context of the book, it speaks not of Jesus separated in heaven, connected to the phrase to follow, but rather the way in which Jesus separated himself from the sin of sinners when he was in the midst of this waking world. While on earth, Jesus did not participate in the sin of a godless world. He set himself apart as free from sin. But today, he is exalted in the heavens. Last phrase there, verse 26. He is exalted above the heavens, speaking of his Glorious ascension, his reign at the Father's right hand. If charges were filed against you in this world, you want an attorney with a reputation for integrity who knows the law better than anyone else. If you needed surgery, you do not want a surgeon who is addicted to opioids, stays up all night gambling, and hasn't read a medical journal in years. And if you are standing before the holy God of the universe. A God whose righteousness demands white-hot justice. You want a sinless priest. You want one whose life pleads for you as representative and sacrifice. And that's exactly who Jesus is. Verse 27 he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He committed no sin, so there was no need for him to sacrifice to find atonement with the Lord. 
nor does he need to offer daily sacrifices for those that he saves. Why? Because Jesus offered one absolutely final and utterly sufficient sacrifice for all time, namely himself. He became the fulfillment of the sacrifice and the fulfillment of the priestly offering of that sacrifice. He offered to God in our behalf his own death as the final sacrifice to atone for sin. You can't invent that story. You can't make this up. As we come to look at the depths of it, we come to the conclusion in our spirit, there's no other answer. This is too good not to be true. By dying in the sinner's place, he provided the sufficient satisfaction of God's anger against sin. And so let's hone in to your own soul and heart. Does the Spirit of God witness with your spirit that he died for you? That Jesus offered up himself to pay the full cost of my sin. This isn't theory. This isn't theology test. This is very, very personal. Do you know? Do you sense? Does the Spirit of God witness with your spirit? He died in my place. Condemned in my place. Bearing my sin in His body on the tree. Cursed by God for me. Now, rounding out this idea of God's oath, stressed in verse 20. Note the word there in the emphasis, 20 and 21. We find three references to oath. Oath sworn in, um, I'm sorry, two, but three between verses 20 and 21. That's rounded out now in verse 28 with this statement. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. The law is what? The Mosaic law appoints men... That would be Levitical priests in their weakness, in their sin. They have to offer sacrifices for their own sin. But the word of the oath, Psalm 110.4, which came later than the law by the pen of David around 1000 AD, a BC, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That word son really should kind of leap off the page at us as we understand the book of Hebrews to this point. There's chapter 1, this son who does everything that the father does. This son who has ascended to the father's right hand. This son who was made perfect. Made perfect not because he was imperfect, but made perfect in this sense that through his earthly ministry he became everything that the Savior of souls must become. You cannot have a better high priest than what Jesus has become through his suffering and death. He completed the work of redemption that the Father assigned to him by taking our place, taking on our humanity, paying the cost of our sin. Philip Hughes puts it so well this way, In temptation he knew no defeat. In suffering he endured to the end, and in death he was sovereign, proving by the glory of his resurrection that he had power both to lay down his life and to take it again. He has been made perfect forever. There can be no other way of salvation 
Christ rests. The work is finished. He said it on the cross as we sung of it earlier this morning. It is finished. Redemption's plan complete in the sense of provision and one day complete in its fullness. Notice what he says as we just dive into verse, eight, or verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have such a high priest. There is the confidence of faith that the Spirit gives to us. How do we know then that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? How can we be assured of this? How can we know for certain that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus? What right do we have to deny to other religions the freedom to posit another prophet, another way of salvation? Well, in reflection, false prophets come and false prophets go. But none fulfills over 2,000 years of prophecies. Collaborated across the centuries by finite men, it would be impossible. But by the infinite hand of God, by the Spirit of the living God, coordinating through the centuries these points of revelation that point us to the final sacrifice for sin, the final high priest. So, as you share the gospel with others, as, as you're working with people, ask the teachers of other religions, what must I do to be saved? And you will be directed, I guarantee you, to good deeds. To reform yourself to their system of belief. To follow their teachings in your own strength and to be a good person. Anybody choosing to do so may do so. But what those religions cannot offer that Christ does is a changed heart. A new covenant where the law of God is written upon the heart, where there is a desire from within to do the Lord's will. They point no one to an eternal high priest, no sacrifice for sin that is sufficient to pay for the death, pay the death that we deserve. No conquest of death. And no one interceding for his people from heaven's throne. In light of this great high priest, let us never get sucked into a godless system of unbelief or to embrace the dictates of a false religion that simply bolsters our confidence in our own goodness. We come humbly to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We have a great high priest. We have this high priest who is able to save us to the uttermost. A priest of moral purity and intercessory privilege before the Father's throne. Yes, I know this is faith in the revelation that God has given us, but it's never going to go any other direction. Our salvation must be a gift from God. It must be a message that we receive from above. 
And the message that is supposedly received above in the religions of this world, if you, if you look at them long enough, you find they're all coming down here on the horizontal. That's their inspiration. But we have here in the faith of Christ this revelation that comes from above that transforms and that bears witness to the risen, reigning high priest who secures utterly the salvation of his people. And so, to our critics, we would humbly object. We're not bigots. We're not arrogant. We're not closed-minded. We're not intolerant obscurantists. We are the ones spiritually impoverished who have found in Christ the bread of life. We have found the satisfaction of soul in the great high priest whose atonement does indeed cover our sin. And so we are simply spiritual beggars showing other beggars where to find the bread of life. Namely, in the person and work of the eternal priest of the superior covenant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose return we await. Father, we praise you for the assurance of who Jesus is as we delve deeper into the revelation that you have provided, we come to that conclusion by the ministry of your Spirit alone. We know it's not our intellect that comes to the conclusion. And we know this is hard for an unbelieving world to understand because they've come to their conclusions by their own intellect and emotions and desires and will. We have received a revelation from above. We have received a revelation in the incarnate Son. And we have a high priest who is holy and spotless and innocent and whose sacrifice of his own life in ours does indeed provide atonement for sin. We deserve to die because of our violation of your will and our refusal to see your glory our willingness to steal that glory for ourselves. We deserve judgment. We sense that the conviction of the Spirit makes it clear to us. We can ignore you and pretend we're pretty good and compare ourselves with others, but Lord, we deserve your judgment. We know it. But we praise you for your promise that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And though we cannot prove to a lost and rebellious world that Christ lives and reigns, we know it in our experience as the body of Christ. We know it in our spirit as your spirit bears witness with ours. We know it as we look to the revelation of Scripture and we see the beauty of the plan and the evidences of the plan 
And so here, Father, may you deepen this assembly, deepen the believers of this church to never leave Christ, to never walk away, to never be drawn in by man-centered, man-inspired religion. But may we trust in Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. And we pray that that light would dawn on all who know not Christ as Savior. According to your will, in your time, bring them to know you, to trust you, and to see what is at stake. We praise you, Father, for the new way that fulfills the old way and allows us entrance into your presence as forgiven sinners. May each of us have confidence in our heart that this forgiveness was won by Christ and has been made ours. In his name we pray. Amen.